Well, at this time, I'd like to invite the kids to head back to Children's Church in the back, ages three to kindergarten, three to five-year-olds. Feel free to head back and join Miss Maggie there, who's going to teach you today about some guy who ate locusts and honey in the wilderness. It'll be a fun time for you all. The rest of us can turn to Genesis chapter 3, where some people eat something very different. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 this morning, in fact, I invite you to, to stand with me as I read from this passage, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. And I'm reading from the NIV. Genesis 3, 1 through 13 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Maybe seated. Father, we come before you in prayer this morning asking for help, as always. And when we read passages like this, we realize that as we read the Bible, it reads us and it shows us who we are. And this text, as all texts, but this text especially is one that humbles us and shows us our great need for a Savior. And I pray, Lord, as we leave today, we be convinced of that need and convinced of who our Savior is, and in our need, rejoicing in Him. We pray that for us here in this room and those who are in children's church, that all of us may worship and praise you. Amen. What went wrong? What is wrong with us? What is wrong with the world? That's a question that anyone can ask because nobody is going to look out into the world, going to watch the news, going to look at their own hearts and say everything's perfect. 
No matter what you believe, no matter what background you come from, there's nobody, I think, who would look at this world and say, no, this is all good. All of us would say, something happened. Something went wrong. For some reason, things are not the way they should be. And there are all sorts of explanations in the world for why that is. So some would say that it is a lack of evolution, that we as humans have not yet evolved to where we should be, but if we keep making progress, one day we'll get there, and we'll be able to usher in perfection, we'll be able to fix all the wrongs in the world. Some would say maybe that the problem is karma. We have a stain on our souls, and that stain needs to be removed by getting good karma, working off that stain so we can kind of work our way into goodness through good deeds. Some would say our problem is biological. If we could better ourselves through science, through medicine, through biology, technology, we can fix ourselves. Some say our problem is environmental. We're born in bad surroundings. If we could fix our surroundings, our environment, all will be well. Some, like Buddhists, would say that our problem, actually, is that we desire and crave things. If we could get rid of all of our desiring and all of our cravings, then we would be at peace in this world. Some say that the problem is that there's war in the spiritual realm. There's war amongst the gods. And there are good spirits and evil spirits, and we just need the good spirits to win out in the end. Some, like Hindus, would say our problem is separation from ultimate reality. That sin in the material world is is an illusion, and we just need to get past the illusion into in touch with ultimate reality. Some would say our problem is psychological. That if we just have healthy minds, a good dose of therapy, some counseling, some self-actualization, get rid of the self-doubt, learn to love ourselves, then all will be well. A lot of Christianity has sounded a lot like that over the last number of years. It's important to get this question right. Because if you don't get the problem right, you won't get the remedy right. You need accurate diagnosis of what is our problem if you're going to get a good cure. And historic Christianity has always looked to Genesis 3 and found our problem. Here's where it all goes wrong. It doesn't take long in the story of creation for it all to go wrong. And it happens here in what has been called the fall of man, and this rebellion against God, the first sin. We, we know because we looked at this, and we didn't just know this because we know our Bibles, that, that God had made an agreement with man. Some people even say that God made a covenant with Adam. And in this agreement God made with Adam, and Adam as kind of the representative of all humanity, God gave an agreement with him and said, I have given you all good things. You can live in this garden. You can eat from the tree of life. And so long as you eat from these trees and enjoy this creation, you will live forever. But there is one tree, the tree of the knowledge of, the, uh, of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, then you will die. And there's the basic agreement. Everything's been given to you. Enjoy it. Honor me by, by obeying the command and not eating from the one tree and all will be well. But if you eat from that one tree, you will die. There's the agreement. And as we know from Genesis 3, the agreement was broken. Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, fell into sin. So what I want to ask this, uh, this morning is the question, how did this happen? How did humanity fall into sin? That's my main question for us. How did humanity fall into sin? What I want to do is examine Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13, and, and ask, how did this happen? How, did, how were they deceived? What happened that Adam and Eve, who were in perfection, chose to rebel against God? 
How did they choose against him? What went wrong? How did humanity fall into sin? We'll answer that question in three stages. First in verses 1 through 5, we see the start of it all. And in verses 1 through 5, God's word is questioned. That's how it happens in the beginning. God's word is questioned. It is the foundational step into sin. God's word is questioned, and therefore his goodness is questioned, and because of that, humanity falls. Look at verses 1 through 5. I'll read it again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we are introduced to the famous serpent. A couple things about the serpent that you should know. One, if you look at the text, notice the serpent is a creature. He is among all the wild animals created by God. It's important to know that that at the foundation of the conflict of the world, we, we don't have a good God and an equally powerful evil force and they're duking it out. That's not the reality of Scripture. It never has been. You don't have God on one side, Satan on the other, and we'll see who wins in the end because they're equally powerful. No, right from the beginning, you have a good God and then creation underneath. There is no power that is equal to him that is opposing him. God is not out of control with creation. Right from the beginning, he is Lord, and there is nobody who threatens that or can contend with that. What we do have is some creation that went rogue, and we don't know when this happened. We were never told in Scripture when this fall, or this first fall of demonic beings or creation happened. But we know somewhere along the line, some part of creation went against God, and then it's manifested in this serpent, the serpent who was cunning, which is not necessarily a bad word. It's a word that also means shrewd or clever. And Proverbs, I think, eight times uses this word, advocating that we should be shrewd and clever. Or, as it's translated here, crafty. But this serpent is a bad kind of crafty. It's a deceitful serpent. I take it to be that the serpent is the mouthpiece of Satan. That the serpent is a vessel for Satan, maybe in the same way that a donkey once was a vessel for God, in his voice. That Satan uses the serpent, this animal, and speaks through him. Jesus says this about Satan. He's a murderer from the beginning, and there is no truth in him. You'll actually notice that nowhere in Genesis does the text equate the serpent with Satan. And actually, if you read through your Old Testament, you're not going to find a lot of data on Satan or the devil. There's just not a lot the Old Testament says about this being that we know of as the devil. But you get to the New Testament, and you understand your biblical theology, and in the New Testament, by the end, you see that the, the devil or Satan is associated with the serpent. So we read that back in and say, this is 
Satan speaking through the serpent. So listen to what Revelation 12.9 says. It talks about the downfall of Satan. Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. This is what the devil does, this is what Satan does. And he started here, speaking through the serpent, leading the whole world astray. And how did he do it? What is Satan's method? How does he go about leading the whole world astray? He starts very simply by questioning the word of God. Did God really say? Fundamentally, a demonic question. Did God really say? You'll notice here he, he speaks to Eve, which I think is significant. Why? Who was the command not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Who was that command given to? It's given to Adam. When was it given? Before Eve was created. So God created Adam first, spoke to him and said, here's the command, don't fall away from this. And implicit in that is the responsibility for Adam, the man, to make sure that all creation doesn't fall against this, that he teaches Eve, his wife, and that he is responsible over this. God gave that responsibility to Adam. What else did God give Adam and Eve with him? Dominion over the animals or the rest of creation. Then this creation order is reversed when the animals, when the serpent, speaks not to Adam, but goes directly to Eve. There's a reversal of the creation order, a kind of an upturning, an upending of how God had designed things. It goes to Eve and speaks to her and questions with venomous words, did God really say? Now I want to be careful here, and I want to point out, there's two kinds of questioning God's word. One is essential and helpful and righteous, and the other is demonic. And you need to know the difference between the two. There's the kind of questioning God's word that is trying to figure out, what did God say? That's what all of us are doing as we learn, as we roll around Scripture in our heads and our hearts and our minds, and we try and look at it from different angles and learn about it in community. We all know that we don't know the Bible top to bottom. We don't know God's Word top to bottom. So we have to learn and we have to ask, what did God say? That kind of questioning of God's Word is righteous and holy and good. It's what we're commanded to do, to learn what God has said. And to do that in community and to do that through questions and I don't understand this, I'm curious about this. If you don't have that curiosity, actually, it's a bad thing. We should all have the kind of curiosity that says, what did God say? I want to figure this out so I can understand it, so I can obey it. That's one kind of questioning God's word that's very, very good. What did God say? There's another kind of questioning God's word that is at its core demonic, and that is, did God really say? And you have to know the difference between the two. One is... Faith seeking understanding, the other is skepticism seeking rejection. We can throw all that. God didn't really say that. One, as a pastor, I have all the time in the world for because all of us should be curious people, knowing we don't know everything, trying to learn what God says. The other can be dangerous, especially in leaders. We're constantly throwing doubt on Scripture, saying, ah, God didn't really say that. You don't really have to listen to that. And I would say to you, if you find yourself under the teaching of somebody who is constantly throwing doubt upon Scripture, run. 
run from that kind of teaching. It has a lineage that goes straight back to Genesis 3. And notice how the serpent questions the word of God. He actually misquotes God. He twists the command of God. Did God really say you can't eat any tree in the garden? This is what false teachers do. They specialize in what God didn't say. Twist what God said, add some things, remove some things. Did God really say this? Create distrust. Eve then tries to combat it. You'll notice she doesn't do much better with God's command than the serpent does. I'm going to read Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, where the original command is given. Then I'll read what Eve says and how she quotes the command. And I want you to notice if there are any differences. So the original command that God gave, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, God says, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the original command. Now, here's how Eve reports it. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Do you know some differences? She doesn't quite get it right. I think she actually mixes it up in three ways. First, she underemphasizes God's provision. In the Hebrew, it's very clear. God says, you may freely, you may certainly, he emphasizes, you may surely eat from any tree. There's an emphasis there. She underemphasizes God's provision, says, well, you may eat from any tree. She takes out the emphasis. So she underemphasizes God's provision. Then she also underemphasizes the penalty. God says, if you eat of it, you will certainly die. Again, there's that emphasis. You will surely, you need to know this, you will certainly die. And she says, if we eat from it or touch it, we'll die. She minimizes the penalty. But I think most importantly, she does something else here. She adds a command that was never in there. You must not eat it, and you must not touch it. God never said anything about touching it. Eve is the first legalist. Like a good Pharisee, like a good fundamentalist, adding on commands of Scripture that were never there in the first place. It shows us right from the start that adding on to God's word doesn't help us keep God's word. What it actually does is confuse it, make it harder to understand and harder to follow. And now that the word of God has been confused a little bit, it sets the serpent up to just outright reject it. You won't die. In fact... It'll be better for you if you do it. Two prongs of his attack. A denial of the seriousness of sin and an affirmation of sin. Actually, you'll be better off. God won't judge you. God won't condemn you. He wouldn't carry out that penalty of death 
Oh, no. God's all love. It's his job to forgive. He would never do that. Don't you worry about it. God won't condemn people. That sin is no big deal. That sin won't hurt you. In fact, you'll be better off. God's keeping something good from you. You'll love it. You'll enjoy it. In fact, you'll be like God himself. I think there he's appealing to her. Uh, their desire to be something other than what God had made them. God made Adam and Eve creatures in his image. So, oh, you don't have to be content with that. You can be so much more. You don't have to submit to God. You can be God's yourselves, determining for yourself what is right and wrong. You don't have to listen to him and his word. You make the decision for you. You decide. God's word has been all twisted up until it's finally rejected. And that's how the fall happens. It's how sin happens. Commentator Alan Ross said, It is interesting that three times the word of the Lord is quoted, but never appropriately. Once it is questioned in a misleading way, once it is paraphrased with major changes, and once it is flatly denied. That's how deception works. God's word is twisted and misquoted and then questioned and even his goodness is questioned. And then the penalty minimized, you won't suffer from that, don't worry. And actually, it'll be good for you. Isn't that what happens when we sin? Whatever the sin is, whether it's pride, Bitterness towards others, anger, condescension, lusts, greed, envy of what other people have. Whatever, whatever the sin is that you wrestle with, and all of us do, we fall into sin and we say, that's eh, no big deal. It's not a problem. In fact, it's good for me. I'm entitled to it. And we forget what God says about it. Misquote God. Don't worry about what his command has said. And so sin happens, and then once that seed of doubt and deception is sown, and very quickly leads to full-on rejection of God's command. That's what happens in verses 6 and 7. God's command is rejected. Once God's word is questioned, God's command is rejected. Verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The fall happened because sin looked good. That's what happened when God's word got twisted up. Now, what God said was evil actually looks pretty appealing. What God had clearly said, no, this is outside the bounds. Here's provision, but prohibition. It is not unclear what God said. 
But once it gets questioned, once it gets twisted up, then all of a sudden, what God had previously clearly said was evil, now actually looks pretty good. And we can affirm it and justify it. And that's what happened with Eve. She now sees, actually, this tree is good. It has several benefits. Look at it. It's good for food. It's physically beneficial. I'll be healthier for it because this tree can be eaten and it'll be good for my body, be good for me physically. It's attractive. It'll be aesthetically beneficial. It'll make me feel good. Just look at it. Look how beautiful it is. It's emotionally pleasing. And it's spiritually beneficial. It's desirable to make one wise. If I eat of it, I'll be spiritually benefited. Look at how good this tree is. Good physically, good emotionally, good spiritually. God's word has been thrown out as an authority, so now she's able to look at it for herself with her own eyes and make a judgment and say, oh, look at how good this is. She does not even realize she is deceived. We tend to think that we will always see sin coming. Oh, no, I've got great discernment. I'll be able to see it coming. But that's what happens when we are deceived, when we fall into sin. We think it's good. That's how sin happens. We're tempted, and we look at the temptation and say, you know what, that actually looks pretty good. Sin rarely comes to us ugly. It rarely comes to us and presents itself. Temptation never presents to itself to us to say, this is going to be really unattractive, but I'll go for it anyways. No, it always looks good. Satan comes as an angel of light. This will make you happy. You deserve this. It's not wrong. You'll enjoy it. But, and then once that happens, the fall comes really quickly. The sin happens very quickly. I'm struck by, as I read this Genesis 3 account, how few words are devoted to the fall. She took some and ate it. There it is. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Fall of humanity, right there. In just a few brief words. It's shocking how quickly it happens, but it happens that quickly because the groundwork has already been laid. So some of us... I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you're human, you've had this experience, where you fall into sin, and then you look around and say, how did I get there? That happened so fast. I can't believe I did this again. I, I thought I would have seen this coming. I think for people who cheat on their spouses, this is where that ends up. Like, I, I thought I put all the guardrails up, and all of a sudden, here I am. And we're shocked by it. Well, happens because the, the sin is just the outcome. It's just the fruit. The actual doing of it is a product of all the work that's gone in before, of diminishing the word of God in your mind, building yourself up. No, I can decide for myself. All that deception that happens before, and then once that has happened, it's just an easy domino to fall into transgression. And that's what happens. Sin almost becomes inevitable once the groundwork has been laid. And that's what happens here. Now, you'll notice very clearly, that Eve didn't sin alone. Almost shocking, all of a sudden, there's Adam. She gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. What's interesting, you can't pick this up in our English Bibles because you, singular, and plural are the same. Uh, I've long said that maybe our Bible should say y'all when it's talking to multiple people, so we could see it. 
But when the serpent speaks here, he speaks in the, second, or in the plural. He's not just speaking to Eve. He says, you all. He's speaking to them. Why? Because Adam was with her the whole time. And what did Adam do? A whole lot of nothing. The command was given to him. We're going to see in a moment when God comes and speaks, who does he speak to? Who does he hold responsible? Adam, what happened? He was responsible for this. There, there's a, a book by Dr. Larry Crabb, who's a Christian psychologist and counselor, and he, he wrote a book called The Silence of Adam. Based on the event here, on male passivity and the male tendency to not take responsibility where he should. It goes back to our original father, Adam, the failure to take ownership and responsibility. He should have stopped the conversation, he should have stepped in, instead he just goes along with it. And I think this is a pretty patterned sin tendency in males to not take responsibility they should. In fact, there is seemingly an epidemic of this today. Dr. Anthony Bradley is a professor at a Christian school in New York. says we are experiencing a boy crisis in our day. That's what he calls it. He calls it a boy crisis. He teaches at a college. He sees young men come in to the college. And he's, he's examining and says he thinks there's a boy crisis in our Western world. Why? Because young men are disappearing from both college and the workforce at alarming rates, while their females, female peers excel. More and more women in the workforce, more and more women in college, more and more women working, and men just not. It's not that men are dropping out of college to go into trade schools or anything like that. They're just disappearing. Just not engaging. Not getting educated, not going into trades, just not doing anything. At the same time, young men are far more likely than women to commit suicide. And deaths from drug overdoses in young men are climbing. There's a responsibility that's not being passed on in young men to rise up and take ownership of their lives. I'm not a good enough sociologist to know exactly why that's happening. I have some theories. I do wonder if years and years and years and years of being told that there is no difference between men and women and that your maleness actually doesn't really all matter all that much. Years and years of men being told you're not that significant. You don't have any special responsibility being told that for years and years, I think, actually does produce something. It produces men checking out. So I'm going to be, in my own home, my own ministry, I'm pretty unapologetic about telling young men, you have a wonderful role to play. You have a God-given responsibility to take ownership, take the word that God has given you, the opportunities God has given you, the hands he gave you, to be creative, to work, to lead, to teach. The world needs men. And I am thrilled that we have men in this church who take ownership, who serve, who protect who lead. My prayer is that our young men will do the same. Because when Adam just stands by and does nothing, this is what happens. In fact, he does worse than nothing, as we'll see.
They feel the immediate results of sin. Their eyes are opened. They're ashamed. The serpent told them they'd be like God. How do they feel? Very far from God. Naked and ashamed. I had an old seminary professor who said that sin promises like a prince but pays like a pauper. Sin promises, it'll be awesome, then as soon as you're on the other side of it, oh no. They feel shame. They clothe themselves, they put a barrier between them. Now the intimacy is gone that Adam and Eve once had. If you want to know what happens in relationships and why intimacy is dead and what has gone on, well, sin gets in the way of intimacy. And that's what happens here with Adam and Eve. And once that happens, once they have rejected God, they fall into sin, and now they fear him. They're not only ashamed of one another and another's presence, they're now afraid of God himself. We see that in verses 8 through 13. God's presence is feared. His word is questioned, his command is rejected, and then his presence is feared. After the fall into sin, God comes to lovingly interrogate Adam and Eve, ask what happened, and they run from him, they hide from him. They try and ghost God, uh, which tells you that sin is stupid, right? Right from the start. Sin makes you dumb. When you think you can hide from God, that's stupidity. God's presence is fear in verses 8 through 13. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There's a barrier now between Adam and Eve. They clothe themselves, and now there's a barrier between them and God. They try and hide from him. It says that God is walking in the cool of the day, which is an interesting phrase. That word cool can also be translated wind or spirit. It's the Hebrew word ruach for spirit. So it might be that saying that God's spirit was among them, the spirit of the day. At the very least, God is walking, which I think is interesting. Physically there, among them. So a lot of people, a lot of theologians, people who read this think this may be the first example right here in Genesis 3 that we see of God making himself physical and walking among his people, what theologians call a Christophany, an appearance of the Son of God in the Old Testament. I actually think that's exactly what's happening. The incarnate God and his spirit among them, and they try and hide from him. Why do they hide? Because they fear exposure. What are two of the most common scary dreams people have? One is falling. That's there. There's a metaphor there, falling. One is being naked somewhere. How many of you had You don't have to raise your hands. It's okay. <laughs> so one is being naked or... And what is the greatest fear that people have, according to many studies, more than death? public speaking. So if you have the nightmare of being naked in front of people speaking you're just, and falling down, then you just hit the trifecta of all the fears. But why are those the fears? 
Why is public speaking a fear? Why is being naked a fear? Why? We fear exposure. We fear vulnerability. We are afraid of being seen. That somebody would actually know us for everything and everyone that we are, for all of us to know us and then to see that accurately, that is frightening for most people. To be seen, to stand before, I mean, how many of you, you love job interviews or peer reviews or those kind of things, to just be interrogated, to be evaluated, is frightening for most people. Why? Because we know we're not perfect. We don't want anybody to see it. We know we have things to hide. We're afraid of being exposed, especially before somebody who's holy. That's why people don't like people that they think are perfect. Perfect people, I don't stay away from them. I hang out with the loser crowd, the sinners, because I'm comfortable with them. Perfect people, oh. I think it's why people are afraid of church. A lot of people are afraid of church because they see the church as kind of holy people, they're righteous people, I don't want to be amongst them. There are a lot of people who are just afraid of being around church, people going to church. I don't know, it seems like too holy, Uh, that's not me. We're afraid of being exposed. That's how Peter felt when he saw for the first time who Jesus was. Remember, Jesus catches all the fish. Peter has a realization of who it is that is before him. And what does Peter say? He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. It's a strange response unless you understand who we are as sinful people. We're afraid of being before a holy God. And sin has caused them to no longer be want, to want to be around God, but be ashamed and to retreat from him. And there we get the fundamental problem of sin. This is what sin does. It separates us from God. He's holy. We are not. We know it. And we don't even want to be around him. So people think everybody's seeking God. No, they aren't. They're running from God. God seeks them. Those who are sinners run from God. They don't want to be anywhere near Him. We might run to a fake God that we create that doesn't judge us for our sins. We'll run to that kind of God. But the true God, who is holy, who actually condemns sin, we run from that one. That God has to seek us. And that's what happens here in the garden. Because we have a fundamental problem. And when sin enters the world, we are broken away from God. We are strange in our relationship. We are separated from Him. Instead of knowing God in peace and harmony and love, instead we are naked and ashamed and run away. So he must bridge the gap, and that's exactly what he does. God comes and he asks, Adam, where are you? Now God knows where he is. He's asking for Adam's benefit. Where are you? And he isn't just asking that location. He's asking, what condition are you in? What's happened to Adam? Here's a, a word for kids. Sometimes your parents will ask you, what happened here? I'm going to give you a clue. Sometimes we know what happened. Sometimes we already know what's gone on. We can see it as plain as day. So why are we asking the question? We want to know if you know what happened. We want to know if you'll tell the truth, how you'll respond, Right? That's what God is doing here with Adam and Eve. He knows what happened. Adam, where are you? I was naked and ashamed, so I hid. Adam, who told you that you were naked? Where did all this guilt and shame come from? 
did you eat from the tree you weren't supposed to? How does Adam respond? Buses have not been invented yet, but he found a way to throw Eve right under one. He does what I did when I played hockey as a goaltender. I probably said this before. But I was a goalie in hockey, and one of my favorite things to do when scored on is find, figure out who else can I blame around here? When the goal scored on me, well, clearly, if the left winger had covered the point like he should have and had his man, and if the defenseman didn't screen me and take out my vision, then I would have been able to stop the puck. So clearly, I mean, a couple things happened here before it got to me. Right? Anybody who's an athlete knows how to do that. They weren't in a position here. You can blame shift. That's exactly what Adam does here. In fact, and he goes right back to the top. It was the woman you gave me, which takes some guts. We I mean, really got, if you think about it, this is your fault. Again, sin makes you stupid, right? Right in the text. We pass the blame. This is what he does. It's kind of what Eve does to a lesser extent. It was the serpent. He deceived me. She takes some ownership, but really it's the serpent's fault. Why do we blame shift? Because we can't stand the thought of being wrong. And we don't trust that we'll be forgiven. I can't accept the reality that I might be in error and that I might be worthy of condemnation for it. And I don't trust that whoever's on the other side of this is going to forgive me and accept me. So I'm going to shift the blame to somebody else and pass it to them. So I don't have to take responsibility for it. That's what Adam does here. Instead of loving his wife, the first thing he does is he sets her up for judgment. If only there was someone there to take the blame for them. It's probably the thing they wanted most in that moment. This is a little bit speculative. But in that moment, what they're looking for Somebody who will take their blame for them. Somebody who will take their guilt and their shame and their sin away from them because they can't stand up to a holy God in their condition. They're longing for a scapegoat. They were fully to blame for their sin. They couldn't blame their environment. It was perfect. Couldn't blame their family. They were it. It wasn't their dad's fault or their mother's fault. They couldn't blame school system. Couldn't blame media. Couldn't blame culture. In the end, sin resides in the human heart. No matter what factors are around. And we are fully responsible for it. That has always been the problem with humanity. We ask what went wrong. It wasn't anything out there. The problem is within us, in our own hearts. The problem is that we all have that sinful inclination passed down to us from our first father, Adam. Through his sin, sin entered into all of us. Paul says this in Romans 
Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. So we find ourselves in a problem. In Adam, we are all sinful, born in sin, born in his guilt, confirming his guilt by our own sin, by our own rebellion against God. This is what went wrong. This is how humanity fell into sin. Our problem is that we're born in Adam's sin. Just like Adam, God's command is twisted. We don't trust his goodness. We end up rejecting him. There's our problem. Here's the hope. We're born in sin, but we can be, and we are, reborn in righteousness. Just by sheer grace of God, he has given us righteousness in his Son. Jesus Christ, the true and perfect word who followed every word of God. One who was tempted just like us, yet never sinned. One who never hid from God, but was perfectly in communion with the Father. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, one who is willing to accept the blame and take the blame for us. When we want to pass it around everywhere else, there's one man who says, I'll take it. And on his shoulders, all of our sins from the beginning are laid on him. Adam ate from the tree and separated us from God. Christ died on the tree and brought us back. Restored the relationship, no longer hiding, reconciled and communed with God again. And Paul says in Romans 5.18, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. In Adam, everything went wrong. In Christ, everything is right again. Would you pray with me? Our Father in God, we thank you because you gave us a scapegoat a gift we didn't deserve. We're fully responsible for our own transgressions. And yet we have one righteous man who has taken the responsibility and taken transgressions on his own shoulders and taken the blame for us that we may stand in righteousness. One day judged before you, but not ashamed because we are in Christ, the righteous one. Lord, I do pray that as we go forward, knowing that we are in Christ, we will have confidence that we have his holiness, we have his ability to follow your word, that we're not doomed to sin, but we actually have now the ability to follow you, that we can hold to your word, that we can apply it. We do not need to be deceived because we have the truth in Jesus Christ. May we hold fast and cling to him. May he be our hope now and always. Amen.